All right. Here we go. Quiet. Quiet. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put it all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online contributing editor, and uh, uh, yeah, that's me. It's no. Rich Dreams. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to take a take two on that, are we? No. I didn't I, think so. I actually thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Come on. Okay, okay. Uh, seated across the microphone from me, it's Film Buff Online contributing editor, Aww. Natasha Bukowski. Thank you, editor-in-chief. Uh, so kind. Well, I I am a benevolent overlord. How's it going, Natasha? I think he's going to kill me. <laughs> I'm going good. Uh, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. I am excited that um, I got notification finally after almost a month. My order from the very last four for forty-four dollars sale from Warner Archives is coming. Should be here tomorrow. So that's a big pile of uh, Blu-rays that I will be setting to the side while I finish off my homework for the Oscars. Because there's still a couple of films I need to catch up with. Speaking of catching mm. up on films. Mamaw is wondering when she's going to get Night of the Iguana back. I told her it wasn't going. She's like, when is Rich going to give me my movie back? I go, Mom, it's... Rich doesn't have your movie. I have it because I haven't even watched it yet. And I'm watching yeah, it before he and does. And heavens knows, I don't want to get your mother mad at me. No. No, no one does. Trust me. <laughs> she was very hesitant about letting me borrow the movie that we were going to discuss on the podcast. <laughs> and I'm like, Mom, I'm watching it tonight because we're to. recording tomorrow. <laughs> so I got her to say yes. Okay. <laughs> but um, but other than that, I'm doing good. I'm feeling okay. Um, been back to the theaters uh, once or twice now. And... Feel good about that. Halfway through my vaccination uh, rotation here, as are you. Yes, indeed. I've uh, been back to the theaters a couple of times since then. E. Uh, now I'm just looking at the schedule going, when's the fucking next one? Because <laughs> um, I don't see anything right now that's really jumping at me. And all the Oscar stuff is already gone. So I didn't get a chance to catch up with Minari. Um, that's, me off. that's still available streaming. Well, yeah, it's available on um, streaming, but I wanted to go see it, see it. True. And I know some theater chains for this coming week, the week before the Oscars, are going to have mm -hmm. a number of the the Oscar-nominated films. Uh, uh, some of them, and I believe our local Cinemark is one of them, will have that compilation of the compilation. short... That anthology of short films. <laughs> of the okay, short film touche. nominees. I'll, 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 I'll take that one. <laughs> Um, actually, oh, crud. Does that mean I'm going to be spending most of my weekend at the movie theater? This weekend? Um, well, we have that local movie, uh, film festival. Of well, I mean, Mostly local that, filmmakers and stuff. And well, a I'm, number of them are our friends, so I know we'll be going to well, that. Well, yeah. Um, well, I guess it's a good thing that I'm having, you know, renovations done on my house and they need me to, like... Get the fuck out. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> that'll that'll keep me busy mm -hmm. for a little while. 
Yes. But like you, I'm still down. I still haven't caught up with Minari or Homeland. Homeland? Um, you mean Nomadland? Me, Nomadland. I haven't caught up with Nomadland. And Neither uh, There's a couple of the documentary films that are like available on Netflix that I haven't, I want to find time for, mm -hmm. but I haven't yet. And I think one or two performances left I still have to catch up on. Uh, Pieces of a Woman. Yeah, I need to catch up I've, on that. I've heard is a great performance in a eh movie. If I have time for it, I will certainly go into it with an open mind. The one that you should watch for that category is not Pieces of a Woman. Okay. I, I think I know what you're going to say, but go yeah. ahead. It's definitely the United States versus Billy mm -hmm. Holiday. Yeah. Again, fantastic performance in an eh movie. But uh, this one, I think, holds more weight and is the Judy of this year. <laughs> okay. Nice, nice parallel. I Thank like you. that. Um, <laughs> I'm anxious to watch uh, Minari because I want to find out how it's pronounced. Most people have been saying Minari, but one of the f uh, premier film podcasts, at least in my opinion, Film Spotting, they've been saying it as Minari. Now, I know they're in Chicago, so they got a little Chicago twang to them, but I don't think that that's enough to throw the uh, the accent down uh, down the word to the back end of the syllables there. Um, to be honest, it's just one podcast, so uh, <laughs> I would check first to see oh, if I know. other outlets are pronouncing it that way or if the filmmakers uh, are pronouncing it that true. way i those are the ones you should be paying yeah. attention to i'm way behind on my uh backload of vanity fair's uh award season podcast called little gold men and that's usually a good indication to find out how to pronounce things so mm -hmm. i generally look on words that i don't know or don't know from life i generally you know, look to other podcasters and see how they're talking. <laughs> I um, I still need to catch up on a couple of films, Nomadland, Minari. Um, I do want to see Pieces of a Woman. Uh, I'm almost done with another round. I'm going to finish that one off tonight. Okay. Uh, and then I just have... I should probably watch News of the World. But mm -hmm. I have. It's good. I liked it. It's a you know yet another fine Tom Hanks performance. Mm, that's <laughs> the problem. I'm so Tom Hanksed out at this point. Really? How how does one get Tom Hanksed out? Uh, probably by having him play something other than wholesome. That would be interesting. Because <laughs> that's the thing. Love... He always plays great wholesome characters, mm -hmm. just like Will Smith plays likable characters. Even when he tries to play the devil, he's <laughs> likable. I, that's, I want... that's Big Willie Charm, though. <laughs> I want to see range. Mm -hmm. I want to see you play an asshole. I would love to see Tom Hanks play like a down-and-out villain. I think he'd be great at it. Mm hmm I think he would be mm -hmm. fantastic. He's he's such a damn good actor. But the problem is is he's got to a point. He's typecast. Yeah. The, and it's the same. You, I'm Meryl Streeped out at this point, too. 
Like well, she's another one. She she shows great performances actually across more variety. Mm-hmm. But um, within like the past couple of years, it's just like okay, we know that you're. After she did Iron Lady, I think I was done. Mm-hmm. She she takes jobs, I think, just to have fun at this point. I don't see you know like oh I want to plumb the the depth of this character. She looks like she's just having fun in stuff like um, uh, Mamma Mia and whatever that. That thing was on HBO earlier in the year where they're all on the boat crossing the Atlantic. Um, let them talk or something like that. I, I don't can't. even know. Eh, don't worry about it. Uh, um, <laughs> obviously, no one else is worried about it You know, now that it's award season. Uh, but, but Tom Hanks, the last time he played somebody even remotely bad was in the Coen Brothers remake of The Lady Killers. And that was, what, late 90s? Early aughts? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's gone a long time without playing a character that doesn't have some moral ambiguity to him, I think. I just, I'm just so tired of seeing mm-hmm. the same thing from Tom Hanks every single time that now when I see Tom Hanks is headlining a film, I'm just like, it, it, it's, a me- it's an immediate turnoff to me. Do you know what would be really cool? I just, I think maybe. Um, I don't think I've seen a Tom Hanks movie since The Post. Oof. Because I'm just, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go see that Baz Luhrmann Elvis film because... As Colonel Tom Parker? Well, that's, a, that's an opportunity for him to play a nominal bad guy role. Yeah. Because Colonel Tom Parker was a douche. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's why I'm excited. Plus, mm-hmm. I like Baz Luhrmann. And he has, like with Tarantino in a way, he has a way of taking actors and pulling out a performance from them that you wouldn't otherwise see. Mm-hmm. Um. And so that's why I'm just like, okay, I will give that one a shot. Okay, but let me pitch you just a one-sentence logline idea. Okay. Tom Hanks as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. No. No? I don't think he could do it. Really? I would, I would, I would be interesting to see him try, though. I mean, I, w- I would probably watch it to see him try, but I don't think he could do it. He hasn't shown us enough range on the uh, on the other side of the spectrum for me to think so. Okay. And that's a that's a very there there's a lot of gray, but the characters themselves are supposed to be night and day of each other. Yes. The gray oh. falls in the middle of when they're transforming back and forth. Okay, let's let's kind of ratchet back from Jekyll and Hyde so much, but how about this? Some version of a a sexual predator. I mean, it's Me Too era. You have Tom Hanks being very outwardly charming and everybody seems to love him on the surface, but underneath, you know, he has these other things going on. Um, like when Stanley Tucci did Lovely Bones. I think yes. he could succeed in that. Yeah, something something similar to Stanley Tucci, Tucci's role in uh, Lovely Bones. I, yes. I, I, would, I would back behind that. Okay. Yeah, I would get behind that. I think he could do that. Okay. I will get the president of Hollywood on the phone <laughs> and pitch him this idea. And we will make $100 million, just like Ryan Johnson. <laughs> I, uh... I'm very happy for that guy, by the way. I know. You're sitting there talk... and you're written well, and directed yeah, I, by Ryan Johnson's t-shirt. I did t-shirt. not mean to bring him up intentionally yeah, when I you put did. the t-shirt on this morning. Yeah, you did. Well, maybe. Um, because we've been ta- we were talking about him when I was riding in the car on the way to work this morning. So True. Did did we mention this last week or not? I can't remember. 
Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Hmm. But yes, Ryan Johnson signed a very choice $469 million deal with Netflix. And out of that, he gets $100 million. Daniel Craig gets $100 Daniel million. Craig gets $100 million and uh, Ryan Johnson's producing partner gets $100 million. And the remaining $169 million goes to making two Knives Out sequels. And considering the first film was made on $40 million and did, what was it, Rich? $370 million? Worth it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. They double, They almost doubled um, their budgets from the first film, mm-hmm. and you know they're going to make bank on them. So it's... Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> if you're Netflix, do you put those into theaters first and then on the streaming service, or do you keep them as strictly streaming uh, incentives for people to keep their Netflix subscription or re-sign up or what have you? I would do theatrical first. So so treat it like it's The Irishman or Roma or one of their prestige films. Oh, yeah. Big okay. time. Because I think it, that film is going to do better box office-wise in the, the theater than it is going to do on the streaming service. Oh, yeah. It's not going to make people rush to grab Netflix again. Mm-hmm. Because Netflix is not Amazon Prime. It's not HBO Max. It doesn't have a wealth of material to it that is older and makes you want to stick around and flip through the channels yeah. and go, oh, I, I, this is a comfort movie for me from when, like, when I was a kid. I'm going to throw this on while I'm just like, you know, having mm. an... I mean, Netflix I, is losing a lot of its library. As they're going to, to other streaming, streaming services. Yeah, as, you know, Disney's taking their stuff back. Uh, Paramount's taking their stuff back. Warner Brothers is taking their stuff back for HBO Max. So... Netflix rightly is like, well, we have to become a studio as well. So they're creating their mm-hmm. own content, but which is great. Yeah, that's but, great. But if you aren't interested in that content and there isn't something else there for you, you're going to end up leaving the streaming true. service. Now, I wanted to have a talk with you really quickly about something. Uh-oh. What did I do? No. Nothing, <laughs> nothing that you did. Uh, but I'd like to explain something to our viewers. Recently, we just had Easter Sunday. Yes. And a great tradition on Easter around Easter time is um, the Ten Commandments over on, you know, whatever uh, your ABC might be. Yeah, your local ABC affiliate. Well, this year... It didn't play on ABC. It was over on uh, CBS. Hmm. Now, I don't know where you're listening from, but in our local area, we have a news station called WNEP Channel 16. Um, That's our our ABC affiliate. Yes. And on the local news, there's a segment called Talkback 16. Now, if you're listening from the Luzerne County and you actually pay attention to that, you'll heard someone call in recently. I'm getting there. Okay. Who said, um, what is wrong with you people? Don't you celebrate Easter or Passover anymore? Why aren't no Ten Commandments? Oh. Can we explain oh, why geez. the changeover to CBS? Most please? likely, ABC thought they had other programming that they'd rather do. They looked at the ratings probably for the last several times that they've aired the Ten Commandments, weighted against whatever. Um, I think Warner's Home Video owns it. It was originally an MGM film, but I think it falls under that 
period of time that Warner owns the catalog now. So they probably made a business decision to not air it this year. And CBS said, you know what? That skews a little bit better towards our audience, which traditionally CBS audiences are a little older. Mm-hmm. So Hence all the mm-hmm. yeah, C, uh, CSI. Yep. Maybe <laughs> um, ABC decided they didn't want to run it because it was also going to be in theaters right around the same time. Uh, it was also probably available on the TCM hub on HBO Max. I don't know. I haven't looked. So, you know, there's a lot of decisions that go into that kind of stuff. I was thinking it was people, a rights issue. Yeah. Well, ultimately, you know, ABC didn't want to license the rights to to air it. Yeah. And for whatever reason. And some people don't know that's how the business works. And that's fine. I'm not saying everybody needs to be like me and read Variety and her no, Hollywood Reporter No, but I thought, this would, be a good, I thought but, this would be a good yeah. way to educate our, our listeners yeah, on yeah. why things like this happen. Oh, yeah. A, a um, few years ago, uh, a major switch almost happened. The Academy Awards almost didn't air on ABC mm-hmm. because the contract that the American Motion Picture Sciences had with uh, with the Disney affiliated television company uh, was expiring and they weren't certain if they were going to renew mm-hmm. to air on ABC. Well, that's because, you know, you look at award show, the the ratings for the Oscars mm-hmm. have been kind of drifting downward, you know, with occasional fluxes back up and down, depending on who hosts, but generally trending downward over the last several years. Maybe the last decade or two. And every that always seems to be the big story, either the Monday or the Tuesday after Oscars. Oscar, you know, Oscar telecast ratings were low this year. Yeah, but every broadcast network's ratings are low right now. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't the era when you had ABC, NBC, CBS, a PBS outlet, and maybe a, a very low wattage indie station in your market. You've got, you know... How many streaming options? You've got... 300 and some channels going. Yeah, 300 and some channels through your cable or whatever. So, you know, there's a lot of fighting to get eyeballs onto all of these outlets. And I ha- So that's what's yeah. going to happen. And I was explaining to someone the other day that um, who asked me about this, that when it came down to it, streaming is the new era. Mm-hmm. They were they were saying how on Easter Sunday there was nothing playing on any of the local channels um, except like paid programming. No one watches the local channels much anymore. That's true. It cable is going to start dying out, with the exception of your paid programming stations. Mm-hmm. Um, it all like like uh, FX um, FX does really well. They they do fantastic over there. Oh yeah. Um, uh, AMC if, does pretty good. If people wanted to watch something on Easter, mm-hmm. they should have turned to Turner Classic eight o'clock in the evening on that Easter day. Easter Sunday. Easter parade. Uh, that's why I meant Easter parade. Yeah. yeah. On Easter Sunday. Yeah. So on you're, Easter you're still right. <laughs> um, and but they don't think to turn there. I think some people don't think about that. There's these specialty niche outlets now no. they're just like oh it's a big cable panoply and i use espn and you know whichever cable news network caters to my viewpoint and that's mm-hmm. it and, and so, that's yeah. fine but my problem is and it kind of goes back to our you know 
what started this mm-hmm. were the caller on Talkback 16. And I'm sure if you're not listening in the Northeast PA market, you probably have your own local news Who show has a, like a that has a, a version of this. Yeah, Where people call and complain about things. Yeah, and then they air them. <laughs> It's not news. It's no. never been news. It's just idiots going, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand this, so blah. But this is and, falls in the realm of our expertise, so yes, we thought we'd take yes, the moment to explain. Uh, yeah, and so if you have somebody in your life who uh, was upset that they didn't air the Ten Commandments on Palm Sunday or Easter Sunday, say it's not because... The the people who run the local station, who are totally out of the loop on these kind of <laughs> decisions, it's not because they hate God or religion or you in particular because they knew you just didn't want to didn't want you to see it. It's you know there, there's a lot of factors going on, and remember, and we've said this before, it's show business. Yeah. So a lot of times, it always comes down to. Is this thing going to make us money or can we make more money with doing, you know, this other thing? Yeah. And that's how ABC made that decision this year. Speaking of um, how streaming is the new option. Yes. Is it really? (laughs) That's a good question. That's a good question because I know where I think you're going. Yes. I know what I think you're going to say. So, is the most ridiculous <laughs> jumbling of phrases ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, if you think you know what I'm going to say, then why don't you try to guess and I'll tell you if you're right or not. Okay. Let me mansplain it to you. Um, Sorry. Joking. And... <laughs> video podcast right now. You should see the look I'm giving him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to do video podcasting at some point because this isn't enough work. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Anywho, let me woman explain it to okay. you. Okay, woman away. You guess first. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably going to want to talk very briefly about the box office for Godzilla versus Kong, uh, even though it's available uh, on HBO Max. Shit, he got it. <laughs> Damn, I thought I had him. I thought he well, was going to be stumped in his old age. <laughs> ouch. Damn. Anyways. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, actually, that is exactly where I was going with that. As much as I think that streaming is going to be our our new you know, future of television and movies... Godzilla vs. Kong made a very big comeback for post the start of like post COVID cinema, going back to the movies experience. Mm-hmm. What's the what kind of damage did they do? I think that first weekend they did about forty million, and I think they're up to sixty or seventy, and that's just um, domestic, right? Domestic, yeah. Shit. Yeah. Um... It that opened strong. Mm-hmm. Didn't in like in the first week, its first weekend, uh, internationally, wasn't it on par with Godzilla King of the Monsters? Pretty much in terms of international. And right now, if that's a um, solid opening, yeah. And people aren't afraid to go back to the movie theaters. No, <laughs> they've I been didn't... waiting for it. <laughs> I saw memes going around uh, the weekend after it opened in the States where it was just like 
Christopher Nolan thinking that his time travel Fantasia was <laughs> going to bring people back to the movie theater and underneath it was, you know, lizard beats big monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, as of Sunday, because we're recording this on Tuesday, mm-hmm. um, as of Sunday, it looks like uh, Godzilla versus Kong has cleared 357 million almost 358 million worldwide holy crap that's like one and one week 96 and a half million domestically that's decent that's decent and what a week week and a half mm-hmm. wait how long has it been oh. going domestically and not domestically uh, internationally um it opened a few days before. I think it opened like the Friday before. So okay, it so, had a, like a five-day head start. Okay, so almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. But still, that's that's really decent. Got anything yeah. to add? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm listening. I'm thinking about what you're saying. <laughs> you're scrolling. And I'm also scrolling through uh, the news article I quick pulled up. What, you can't uh, multitask? Uh, yes, I can, but... <laughs> um, but... I I dare say because when we saw it, the theater was, it was pretty. It was pretty busy. Pretty pretty busy, but they still have the COVID safety COVID uh, safety issues. Yeah. You know, two seats between each party, uh, limited capacity. If this, I don't know if the enthusiasm to come out for that would be quite the same if COVID never happened. Um. It's it's kind of a weird catch twenty two. I'm thinking here, people were like, "Yes, we can go back to the movies. Fuck it, let's go see you know Godzilla versus Kong. That looks like fun, because people are starting to get inoculated and everything." And I'm thinking though that you know there wouldn't be such the "I've got to get out of the house" energy that's fueling a lot of these people going to see the movie. So if theater capacities were just normal. Would this be about the same? Um, I think it might be a little bigger. Are they leaving money on the table now? Because, you know, there's still the people wanting to see it, but they can't quite get everybody in, you know, whatever. I I think it would be bigger if COVID never happened. And this movie is also available for streaming on HBO Max. And how much of that is slicing into theatrical rental? I don't know. HBO Max and Warner Brothers probably aren't going to tell us. I honest got I think if COVID never happened, um, this film would do so much bigger. I think this film would definitely break at least eight hundred by the end of its run. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of buildup around it, but I think we were all in from that first trailer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they really and, didn't have to release anything more. That first trailer that came out, give the guy who who put the music onto that thing <laughs> a freaking raise, uh, because everyone in that theater was just like, "Yeah, I'm ready for this." Um, and I, I think HBO Max is definitely cutting into what they would be making and on, on a theatrical run, because you can get. You know, let's do a watch party at the house. Let's let's get five, ten people. I, it's COVID, but it happens. If you're in your bubble or whatever. Yeah, in your bubble. Um, in the house. And let's just, you know, crowd in. We're going to get a couple pizzas, some 
the couple Sixers, and we're gonna watch, you know, a lizard versus monkey smackdown. Yeah. <laughs> now, and you have to look at the worldwide too with a certain uh, asterisk next mm-hmm. to that number because Europe and Brazil aren't open yet. Mm-hmm. Their theaters are still shut. So that's a nice and they, and big they, market. Two and markets they that, don't have HBO Max. Yeah. So, so that's, they're, they're losing money there. Yeah, that's definitely once those uh, markets open up, if you know piracy hasn't done too much of a ding against you know people's desire to see the movie on a big screen, that's you know going to drive another big spike in revenue for the picture. It's definitely going to make its money. It's definitely going to be a bigger hit than um, Godzilla: King of the Monsters, and <laughs> and I, as of right now, Warner's had no. Um, I think this plans. I think it'll drive people to watch the others too. True. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, I went back and rewatched them all too beforehand. But then again, I was also writing that piece for Film Buff Online True. about you know previously on the MonsterVerse. Speaking of the MonsterVerse, if you guys haven't got to it and you have HBO Max and you're you're you know watching Kong versus or Godzilla versus Kong. Um, just be forewarned, Godzilla King of the Monsters is available on HBO Max right now, but it is leaving the streaming service at the end of this month. So if you haven't seen it, get on that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I think out in the and MonsterVerse, that film is the best. And that's a debate we will have another day. <laughs> um, we had this debate, and you uh, said that was true. I said I'd give you points for that. But uh, I, every now and then I kind of think back on um, Skull Island. Skull oh, I Island, think you give Skull, Skull Island, Island more credit than it deserves. It's a big, pulpy adventure. And that's why you love it, because it reminds you of Raiders. No, not necessarily Raiders. It has Raiders, that style. But it has that pulp feeling that goes all the way back to adventure movies of the 30s. Which the original Kong was. So I think and what which, it's doing. Which absolutely digs in you and pulls at your heartstrings. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Oh, thanks. Anyways. I like a good pulp adventure film too, but that one just, it, it didn't hold. Mm-hmm. But um, let's come back in a few minutes with a retro review of a movie that can't be any further away from the movie <laughs> that we're talking about right now. Stay tuned in a few minutes for our retro review of A Man for All Seasons. Over the nine decades of Academy Award history, Many of the films to win the coveted Oscar statuette for Best Picture of the Year have gone on to be considered bona fide classics of cinema. But many of those films that were considered the crowning achievement of the industry have slipped into relative obscurity over time, forgotten and unremarked upon by all but the most diehard of cinema scholars. Director Fred Zinneman's A Man for All Seasons is one such film. Released 55 years ago, A Man for All Seasons was the big-screen adaptation of playwright Robert Boltz's stage play centering on Sir Thomas More and the events leading up to the execution of that 16th-century nobleman who had for a time served as Chancellor of England. 
the play premiered in the summer of 1960 at London's Globe Theatre with esteemed British actor Paul Schofield in the role of Sir Thomas More. When the show moved to Broadway a year later, Schofield reprised the role, winning one of the production's four Tony Awards that year. Schofield, of course, was the only choice for the big-screen Hollywood adaptation, and the actor would be nominated for, and win, an Oscar for his work in the film. In all, the film version of A Man for All Seasons would be nominated in eight categories and win six Academy Awards, including the aforementioned ones for Best Picture and Schofield's for Best Actor, as well as Zinnemann taking home the Best Director Oscar and Robert Bolt winning for adapting his own play. But as the years have passed, A Man for All Seasons seems to have faded from most of the public's mind, remembered only by film and theater fans. So we have decided to take a look at the film and see if A Man for All Seasons is an unjustly forgotten gem just waiting to be rediscovered. So, Natasha. Yes, Rich. For this based-on-history tale, can you kind of set the table for us in terms of British history leading up to this? Because you are the British history person, and I am not. You mean I'm a Tudor nut? Yes. All right. Um, Okay, this definitely takes place late 1400s. We are in the era of King Henry VIII of England. Uh, at this point, I'd say he's around 30s, I think, for, mid to late 30s, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I may be wrong there. And he's going through his first marriage with Queen Catherine of Aragon. Um, if anyone doesn't know where Aragon is, it's off um, Spain. She is uh, the daughter of Isabella of Castile, who is the one who sent Christopher Columbus to find America. Uh, she is was actually married to his brother first, and he died uh, not far into the marriage. Instead of sending her dowry back to Spain and her along with it, they needed the money. So uh, they got a dispensation from the Pope. And she married King Henry, uh, his brother. Um, And at this point in their lives, she's only been able to give him one child who would grow up to be Queen Mary Tudor. She's had many stillborn uh, children as well as miscarriages. And he's getting a little frustrated because he knows that if the crown is passed to a girl, it will cause a civil war. And that's where we start the movie. Not really. Yeah. Nah, not really. At this point, Henry has decided to go philandering, and he sets his eyes on a woman by the name of Anne Boleyn, who has bigger aspirations to be queen than to just be a mistress and to bear him a bastard child. That's not a derogatory. That's actually... <laughs> <laughs> no, we know. Yeah. And this is where we're starting our film, is deep in the center of how does he get his divorce so he can marry and have a son. Okay. Now, obviously, as they at the time are Catholics. Yes. Divorce, it's very much frowned upon, especially if one is a ruler, because one has that mandate from God and the Pope. The only way that one can receive a divorce is through papal mandate. Or $200 and a lawyer in Pittsburgh. But. <laughs> oh, you better hope she's not listening to oh, this. Oh, <laughs> she most assuredly is not. 
enter our main uh, character, Thomas More, who is a lawyer and a nobleman. Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More, excuse me. (laughs) Writer Um, of the book Utopia. Yes. If you haven't read it, go read it. It's really good. And he is basically, as a Catholic, he's like, you know what? My religion comes before my country. And he refuses to acknowledge whether getting that divorce is a good idea or not. He refuses to counsel the king on that, even to the point when he's made, what, the Chamberlain? Uh, Chancellor Chancellor, of excuse me, of England. Is, he still kind yeah. of like dodges around the question because he loves his country. He wants to be loyal to his country, but he finds those two loyalties in conflict, which I think is great material for a story about characters in conflict, morally and with each other. Yes. I'm not sure this is that movie. No, Wolf Hall does it better. <laughs> Jeez. But, um, yeah, and uh, this got, you know, like I said, how many Academy Awards? And a it, lot. Yeah, it, it just... It didn't I, work at all for me. I mean, I liked some I of the performances. Like, I yeah, it had it had John Hurt. It had mm-hmm. Orson Welles. Orson Welles is great. All uh, of Orson Welles. Job of the Hut. Um, no, Cardinal Wolseley. <laughs> yes, all of Orson Welles stuff shot in a day. Not surprised. Yeah, it it's, was it's, only two it's too short in scenes. Yeah, but God bless them. They probably shot the the second scene first. And I don't know what was going on with the makeup, then... but you could tell they were just like, "Hey, let's hire someone who does theater to do a film." No, and, I don't know about that, but uh, I thought Paul Schofield as Thomas More was fantastic. Oh, he was fantastic. He's yes. really good. But, you know, and he played the part in the original play that the movie is based on. Mm-hmm. But for me, part of it feels like, I don't want to say it felt stagey, because they shot on location. There's this great, beautiful old English manor houses they shot in. Uh, the film opens up with, like, a uh, shot of like, what do you call those? Like British gargoyles or whatever. They look like. Yeah, I w- yeah, gar- yeah. I would say gargoyles. Okay. The first thing I thought of when I saw like those first couple of shots, they're not like traditional gargoyles. They look like dogs, but like demony yeah. and stuff. In another film that was shot on partially on location in a British, you know, old manor home uh, in the rain outside as a young couple comes up and knocks on the door to get out of the rain, and there's, like, one of those types of uh, statuary right there next to the door. I'm, of course, talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. I knew you were going there. <laughs> and and literally, that Rocky callback of, hey, look, it's Scooby-Doo on acid, is what I thought <laughs> the moment we saw, like, those first couple of shots of that statuary in broad daylight. I was still thinking the Rocky Horror callback. And that that's entirely the fault of Rocky Horror, not me. I'm not <laughs> taking the blame for that. And but, you know, so so I want to say and this is a weird way to get back to it. All of the stuff in this movie shot on location looks beautiful. Although there's that one scene where uh Thomas More and the King are outside talking early on in the movie mm-hmm. and they're talking about how late in the evening is and it's bright sunlight. <laughs> I think I've done that in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, oh, it's getting late. It's almost eight o'clock, you know. And I'm like, please, the sun's—it's like high noon. What are you talking about? Um, which, which, as 
an ironic pun that I did not intend because the director of this film, Fred Zinneman, also directed the movie High Noon. <laughs> well, that was like when I said yesterday, oh, you could tell that his cardinal sin was gluttony. And then you're like, nice pun, because he's playing Cardinal Bulls. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Orson Welles, okay, let's, let's go back to Orson Welles. Orson Welles did not look well. They also stuck a lot of cakey gray makeup on him. And yes. if you look at the scene where he's dead, you can actually see like eyeliner that they didn't smudge <laughs> properly. It's it's so funny because I'm looking at this going, Orson Welles lived another 20 years after he made this. Yeah. And I'm not sure how. Um, I I, genius filmmaker. <laughs> not somebody I would go to for health advice. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> not some, not somebody I'd expect to, you know, make a salad for me. I, I, I'd say, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, but two sandwiches later, he's Baron Harkonnen. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> you are warming up for Dune at the end of the year, aren't you? I kind of am. Yeah. <laughs> but the film, I mean, it it takes advantage of the locations. You see a lot of, uh, you know, it, it feels very much of the time. But at the same time, there's a certain staginess to it that I, I I don't know if it's inherent in the way the material was written or if it was in the direction of the actors, but there was something that just I couldn't quite connect with the movie. One of the things I liked that... it a lot and it, I felt it moved along, mm -hmm. but ah, urgh. no, it definitely had a stage feel. Um, part of it was how it was shot. Um, I, I think some of it also had to do with the fact that they picked more stage actors for this film um, than those who have done more film, mm -hmm. uh, which is a shame because you look at who's playing King Henry. He went on to play Quint in Jaws. Yeah, Robert Shaw. He's great. Yeah. I mean, remember, he was, one of the he was one of the assassins in the train sequence in From Russia with Love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sean Connery that. smacks his ass around a couple of years earlier than this. Uh, Vanessa Redgraves, you know they shot her out in one, in one day <laughs> as Anne Boleyn. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's she, the great she, Vanessa Redgrave. She had one scene and no lines. Mm -hmm. She just sat there and was giggled. Was that her first film or not i can't remember i don't now. know but her brother yeah. does it has a bigger role susanna, in the film so. susanna york was really good in oh this. she was fantastic um, wendy hiller mm -hmm. there, there, leo mckern who i've loved as a presence on screen since i first saw him in high school yeah great in two, in two episodes of the prisoner series mm -hmm. and that was the first thing i'd ever seen him in i was like oh my god this guy's amazing and you know so whenever he'd pop up in something i'd be like oh Leo's here. Awesome. And he, he, there was a couple of scenes where he had like a little bit of a charm, a little bit of a wink in his eye, a little bit of a, hey, I'm up to something kind of thing going. But most of it, it just felt very one sided, one dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was depressing. And, I, you know, I wanted this to be more about the interior struggles of these characters and you know how do you choose god over country or country over god and it seemed like everybody mm -hmm. was like willing to just kind of go along with henry because that was the past of the, that was the path excuse me of least resistance you know it was easy for them to do and uh sir thomas more chooses the hard way 
and he, choo- he he chooses conscience. He mm-hmm. he chooses piety, and it's not false piety. No, it, he doesn't no. shove it down people's throats. It is just his own principles. And he's a lawyer enough to, you know, dance around the the law and knows enough of it as you can see in the final trial sequence mm-hmm. to you know keep his ass away from the uh, ha- uh the executioner's axe for as long as he did mm-hmm. and it, it you know basically it took another character coming in who perjured himself yeah. against sir thomas more to finally defeat thomas more yeah. you they just had to lie because they knew he was too good mm-hmm. and I think that says something, um, you know, about the strength of, you know, staying to one's convictions. Um, and being intelligent, yes. too. Yes. But, uh, but in that way, these, these, these people in the film weren't characters. They were the theme of the film come to life. And I kind of didn't get a feel for... Um, remember in uh, Amadeus... When the Amadeus, emperor, Amadeus. <laughs> when the emperor is, um, and uh, the emperor's uh, chief musician, uh, played by, um, uh, are you thinking about um, Scalieri? Yeah, Salieri. Salieri, thank you. Um, are like, hey, maybe you know, for your next opera, you know, kind of stick to the classical themes and the classical stories, and. And he just says, and the they're classical, so cl- classical there's... language too, yes. wasn't it? Yes. And he, that was when he decided he was going to do one in German for the first time, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and Amadeus was basically like, look, these guys are so you know entrenched in the classics, they shit marble. That's what I thought thought about these characters here. That you know they're just so staid and they're kind of idealistic, not idealistic, but they're ideals. They're not characters and they're not humans. They're not going through these things, with the exception of. The scene where he visits with his family for the last time when he's in the dungeon. I didn't get any sense of like real emotional life Until that for scene. any of these characters. Nothing. And that was the that was upsetting and depressing to me because there is such a rich material here that could be explored. Now <laughs> at the time it it might have been a, a great triumph of a movie. But for me, it was just, I I think I was making fun of the whole first half of the movie because I have seen many different versions of uh, Tudor history done through books of Philippa Gregory's, the Tudor TV show, Wolf Mm -hmm. Hall, uh, Anne of a Thousand Days, which, honest to God, so much better than this and came out just around the same freaking time. Um you know, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, also with Vanessa Redgrave. There's just such a wealth of uh, films that have told stories that have intermingled with this family. And this felt like the least of them. But in all of those movies, they had more emotion than this did. This didn't present anything new to me that I didn't already know. It, It felt like... Someone said went to a history book, a literal history textbook, and just, you know, jotted down a timeline and said, 
let's figure out what happens in this it, timeline as close to actual history as we can make it. It's and very clinical. It, yes, it was very clinical. It was very boring. It presented nothing new to the audience that you didn't already know by reading your textbook, True. which probably mm-hmm. put you to sleep in history class. <laughs> okay. What's up? Now, and yet this one best picture <sighs> for that year. So let me ask you this. I'll run down the other four nominees and you tell me who you would probably vote for if you were a member of the Academy in 1967, okay? Okay. For Best Picture. The other nominees were Alfie. Aww. With Michael Caine. I love Alfie. Uh, the Sand Pebbles with also, Steve McQueen. Also an, another really good one. Mm-hmm. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Also a mm. stage adaptation, just like Man for All Seasons. And uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That's where your vote would go? Hell yes. Yeah. I, as soon as I said it, I saw your face. <laughs> I was like, yep, that's it. You weren't even listening to whoever was next. No. Um, Boy, it would be between that and The Russians Are Coming for me. I really thought The Russians Are Coming was a funny and insightful film about cold whore paranoia and, you know, maybe, you know, the bad guys aren't so bad after all. I like that. Um, um, Norman Jewison's uh, film. Fantastic. I I I would say okay that yeah that's a good one. Um, but Alf, Alfie's really good. Alfie is really good. I've seen the Sand Pebble. I've seen the Sand Pebbles on a big screen. I I think when it comes down to it though, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Outlasts its time period mm-hmm. because it has a more universal story to it. It's it's intimate and it's about you know the struggles. <laughs> of a couple true and i think that story is timeless mm-hmm. it's it's far more emotional than yeah well, than a man for all seasons no. was. Um, and you've seen people repeat scenes uh, yes. that they've already done very very famously among my friends uh, i've seen a theatrical stage version of who's afraid of virginia wolf which is a long show to begin with <laughs> and then when the four characters on stage actually wind up repeating, I don't know what, three or four pages worth of uh, dialogue. dialogue. <laughs> it becomes an even longer play. Let's just yeah. say, it, let's just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's uh, it's not. It wasn't. I don't think this was one of the Oscars' best years. No. Um, Oscars it, has rise and dips. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you had a bunch of other films. You had like that big epic Hawaii. You had fantastic. Hawaii was really good. Mm-hmm. You had Fantastic Voyage that year. I've never actually seen that one. I need to. Oh, it's 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 fun. It's fun. I I enjoy it very much. Um, you had Grand Prix that year. Um, I believe that's. Um, I think Steve McQueen is also in that. Steve McQueen had probably had a good year that year, <laughs> and um, you know, it's just baffling to me how that film won honestly i mean you, i look at it and go beautiful costuming great location photography uh you kind of really felt you were in the era with, with the, the exception, exception of the, john hurt's hair and makeup that made and, him look like he was looking to be a replacement for john lennon <laughs> it was so bad it was kind of like a ringo mustache it was yeah, very no, ringo yeah. i was like <laughs> it's like um, I'm gonna go and uh, stand in for Ringo on drums, and you know when I play Yellow Submarine or something. <laughs> you know it was, yeah. I mean I love John Hurt. 
you know, oh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic in, in everything. Every, everything, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but man, oh, sakes alive. <sighs> there was some bad hair and makeup choices there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyways. Hi. Honest, I mean, I, at the end of the day, go watch Wolf Hall with Mark Rylance and Claire Foy and Damian uh, Lewis. It is almost the same story, but done more artfully, more emotionally. And by the end of it, you not only learn something, you feel something. Mm-hmm. I would recommend seeing this movie only because, A, you know, Paul Schofield is recreating the stage role he did. He got an Oscar for this. Um it did win the Academy Award. So see it even if you don't like it all that much. So you can at least say, yeah, I'm not sure why that one. <laughs> um, and especially if you've seen, you know, a couple of the other ones that we mentioned as having been nominated. But I do think that about wraps us up for this week. A Man for All Seasons is available to rent or purchase on Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, and other streaming services. And if you are listening to this episode just as it drops, A Man for All Seasons will be airing on Turner Classic Movies as part of their 31 Days of Oscar this Friday, April 16th at 8 p.m. So if you're watching Maltese Falcon at 6, just leave the TV on. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either go to the link in the show notes post or head directly there. Search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. Now, remember, we'll be back next week with our big Academy Awards preview episode. Yes! And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. See you then. I'm Henry the Eighth, I am. Henry the Eighth, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before. Second verse, same as the first. <laughs>